Welcome to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We want to be a place where you can own your faith and take next steps in your relationship with Jesus. Maybe your next step is to seek out a community and join a movement group. Maybe it's supporting movement financially for the first time or using your gifts on a volunteer team. Whatever God is calling you to do, our prayer is that you will step out in faith and let Him lead you. For more information about your next step, please visit movementcolumbus.com. Um, All right, let's open our Bibles. Amos chapter seven and eight. If you got a Bible underneath your seat, it's gonna be on page 545. If you've been with us, you know that we've been going through the book of Amos. Um, A lot of us have probably heard of the prophets. Um, Maybe we've heard of Isaiah, Ezekiel, or Jeremiah. Those are kind of the big ones that we talk about. Um, But you probably haven't heard much about Amos, or if you have, you you maybe just know a little bit about them. And uh, we've been going through this series as we kind of try to understand what the prophets were about, but specifically what Amos was about for this time and God's specific history of his specific people. Now, when I say God's people, what do I mean? Well, God wanted a family. I know that sounds kind of weird, right? That God desires a family of people. God doesn't need people. Uh, God has everything that he needs within himself, but out of the overflow of his love, we are told in scripture that he creates humanity to be like him, to be made in his image, or a better word to use is to be imagers. In other words, we share some of the attributes that God shares. One of those attributes that we share with God is freedom. God doesn't want to create robots, and therefore he creates us to have freedom, to truly choose to love people and to love God. God could have created robots, but then we wouldn't be like him because God is a God of love, God wants his people to be able to express that love too. The problem is that God knew that when he created us, that there was going to be risk because to create beings that could love means that he was creating beings that could also choose to not love. And so what does humanity do? We choose to not love God. We choose to fall, to make ourselves the Lord of our own lives, to choose our own way. And so we sin and God in his infinite wisdom comes up with a plan to bring the nations of people that have disobeyed him, that have wanted nothing to do with him back to himself. And he calls a man by the name of Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all nations through you. And so Abraham has this wife named Sarah. She's barren her whole life. And in his old age, God blesses him with a son. And then that son becomes children that becomes an entire nation. And that is the nation of Israel. And God will use the nation of Israel as his vehicle. At least this is his hope. They do a pretty bad job at it. To show the world what Yahweh, what God the maker of heavens and earth, is really like. And this is where the prophets come in because Israel doesn't display that well. Israel does just what the rest of humanity does. They go their own way. They choose to sin. They choose to disobey God. But more than that, they just choose to live without that relationship with God. And chaos ensues. 
And so God sends prophets. What is a prophet? Simply speaking, it's a person that speaks for God. But more than that, it was these relational watchdogs between Israel and God. And they would call people back to repentance and warn them of the consequences of their sin for not living in that relationship with God. And for Amos, this means that he is a specific prophet in a specific time in God's history. God's people like humanity does, has been divided. You have Israel in the north now, and you have Judah in the south, and they operate as two separate kingdoms. And both sets of kingdoms are now split and have horrible kings, but the north is way worse than the south in so many ways. And so Amos is from southern Judah. He's just a shepherd and a fig tree farmer. But up in the north, there's this king of Israel. It's ironic because he's the king of Israel, but he doesn't look like Israel. He doesn't look like God. And his name is Jeroboam. And he says, I don't want my people to go down to southern Judah where they're supposed to worship God, where they're supposed to worship Yahweh. And so I'm going to establish a shrine here in Bethel in northern Israel. And in that shrine, I'm going to put idols and we're going to worship Yahweh, yes, but we're going to worship him the way that we want to worship him. We're going to worship Yahweh the way that the pagan nations worship their gods. And you could just see how this just descends into chaos as Israel begins to worship Yahweh the way that the pagan nation states around them worship their gods. They were doing everything from leading sexually immoral lives to even starting to mimic some of the practices of the worship of Moloch, which was child sacrifice. This has gotten absolutely out of hand. And so Amos, he's got the guts to see this and God calls him and he says, I want you to speak against this, warn my people. And specifically today, we reach the apex of this letter, this prophecy where Amos says, beware, judgment is coming. The judgment of God will come, Israel, and it will put an end to the ways that you have chosen to worship me. Worship me with filthy practices. And he says this in Amos chapter seven and eight. A vision of locusts and a fire. The sovereign Lord shows me a vision. This is Amos speaking. I saw him preparing to send a vast swarm of locusts over the land. This was after the king's share had been harvested from the fields. And as the main crop was coming up in my vision, the locusts ate everything green plant, every green plant in sight. Then I said, O sovereign Lord, please forgive us or we will not survive for Israel is so small. So the Lord relented from his plan. I will not do that, he said. Then the sovereign Lord showed me another vision. I saw him preparing to punish his people with great fire. The fire had burned up the depths of the sea and was devouring the entire land. Then I said, O sovereign Lord, please stop or we will not survive for Israel is so small. And then the Lord relented from this plan too. I will not do that either, said the sovereign Lord. Then he showed me another vision. I saw the Lord standing beside a wall that had been built using a plumb line. He was using a plumb line to see if it was still straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? I answered, a plumb line. And the Lord replied, 
I will test my people with this plumb line. I will no longer ignore all of their sins. The pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined and the temples of Israel will be destroyed. I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is hatching a plot against you right here on your very doorstep. What is he saying? What he's saying is intolerable. He's saying Jeroboam will soon be killed and the people of Israel will be sent away into exile. Then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. Get out of here, you prophet. Go back to your land of Judah and earn your living by prophesying there. Don't bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. This is the king's sanctuary and the national place of worship. Think about the humor in that statement. (laughs) This is the king's sanctuary, really, Amaziah? But Amos replied, I'm not a professional prophet. I never was trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd. And I take care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord called me away from my flock and told me, go and prophesy to my people in Israel. Now then, listen to this message from the Lord. You say, don't prophesy against Israel. Stop preaching against my people. But this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will be killed. Your land will be divided up. And you yourself will die in a foreign land. And the people of Israel will certainly become captives in exile far from their homeland. Then the sovereign Lord showed me another vision. In it, I saw a basket filled with ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. I replied, a basket of ripe fruit. And the Lord said, like this fruit, Israel is ripe for punishment. I will not delay their punishment again. In that day, the singing in the temple will turn to wailing. Dead bodies will be scattered everywhere and they will be carried out of the city in silence. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. Listen to this, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end. And so you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures and cheat the buyer with dishonest scales. Imagine if you were sitting in here right now and you're like, I can't wait to walk out these doors after I sing these songs and go cheat my neighbor. That's what he's accusing Israel of. And you mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor, disgusting, and then you enslave poor people for one piece of silver for a pair of sandals. Now the Lord has sworn this oath by his own name, the pride of Israel. I will never forget the wicked things that you have done. The earth will tremble from your deeds and everyone will mourn. The ground will rise like the Nile River at the flood time. It will heave up and then sink again. Remember this next verse for later. And in that day, says the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth while it is still day. I will turn your celebrations into times of mourning and your singing into weeping and you will wear funeral clothes and shave your heads to show your sorrow as if your only son had died. How very bitter that day will be. The time is surely coming, says the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread and water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from border to border, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Beautiful girls and strong young men will grow faint in that day, thirsting for the Lord's word. And those who swear by it will be shameful, uh, the shameful idols of Samaria who take oaths in the name of the God of Dan and make vows in the name of the God of Beersheba. They will all fall down, never to rise again. A lot there. We've been going through a lot every week, but we're gonna unpack this and we're gonna make it make sense and we're gonna make it apply to our lives, okay? Well, you know, I have a lot of conversations about God with people and I have some friends, uh, even from back home growing up, they don't believe in the Lord or whatnot. And, you know, this is a very common phrase nowadays, but when I'll talk to them, they'll say stuff like, you know, 
I believe that there's a God, but I just don't believe that uh, God could ever judge anyone, at least not most people, maybe the worst of the worst. In fact, I believe in a God of love that it accepts and tolerates everybody. And I'm just here to tell you that that relationship doesn't exist. Try going home to your spouse today and say, hey, honey, I love you, or whatever you call your husband, and say, I love you, but do you mind if I just do whatever I want whenever I want? They look at you like you have a third eye growing out of your forehead. (laughs) That relationship doesn't exist. Because love requires action. You cannot just say that you love someone and then literally do whatever you want that is not loving towards that person. You display your love towards people by what you do. And so just like your lack of loving actions in your relationship with a spouse will eventually catch up to you or a relationship with your parents will eventually catch up to you and create chaos in that relationship, so does our sin in our relationship with God. This is what love is. Love is not just a blind acceptance of everyone at all times for all reasons. Love doesn't operate like that. And we all know this instinctively, but somehow this lie has made itself uh, very prevalent in the world today, specifically about God. Or I can believe in God, but I would never believe in a God that judge judges. I'll hear that. And to that, I reply, It doesn't matter if you believe that that God exists. If that God exists and that God is a judge, he still will judge. It is not contingent on your belief that that is something that God would do. And what you probably also don't know, or maybe I didn't even know this as much as I probably should this week, but when I looked at the text, I realized that the person that speaks about hell and judgment more than anybody in the entire Bible, in all of the pages of scripture, is a guy by the name of Jesus Christ himself. And in fact, he talks about the final judgment. And when he does, he uses the illustration of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus uses graphic detail to explain the coming judgment of God. Because if you were to open your Bibles from Genesis to Revelation, you would read that there is a God of judgment, that he exists and he will bring judgment on the sin of the world and on sinful people themselves. But he is willing, able, eager, excited, to bring love and mercy and forgiveness to those that would repent and turn to him and trust him with their lives. In fact, the entire Bible is revealing a God who perfectly balances this judgment and love and mercy. They are not incompatible. In fact, I believe that God's love and mercy is perfectly displayed in his judgment. In fact, I think something along those lines is what the prophet Amos is trying to communicate to us this morning in chapter seven and eight. And if you're a Christian and you don't know this, just prepare to get blindsided this morning. It's okay, but we need this. We have to absorb this this morning. See, all of these passages about God's judgment can be so confusing if we don't remember what I talked about first, which is that God created us to be in relationship with him. This is what got God's people into this predicament in the first place. A lack of connection with Yahweh overflowed in disobedient actions and the oppression of poor people and sexually immoral lives outside of that relationship. Even though God made them to look like him, they look nothing like God. And I remember growing up, like 
when I would be disobedient, my dad would look at me and, and maybe you had a dad or mom say this to you, like he would say, you're a veeker, like veekers don't act like this. <laughs> and in the same way, this is what the prophets are doing. They're saying, Israel, Yahweh is your heavenly father. Yahweh is your God, but you don't look like Yahweh. This is your identity. Therefore, don't look like this. But this is the saddest part of this whole text is that the Israelites believe. They think that they are in relationship with God. They think that they are worshiping Yahweh. And I don't know that you could be in a more dangerous predicament. They go to the temple, they make sacrifices, they have shrines in Bethel they, that are devoted to Yahweh. They say that they worship Yahweh. They go to church, they wear nice clothes, they read their Bibles, maybe. They go to a small group, they give a little bit of money, maybe. They say that they're a Christian in their Instagram bio, but it's all hollow. It's all lip service. There's no real relationship. They're living in sin. And at this point, it kind of confronts us. I had a football coach, my head football coach in college that when kids would have, he, he loved the Lord and when kids would have issues on the team and they need to be disciplined, he'd bring them into their office. And I, I just, it's just emblazoned in my mind. Not that I ever got called into his office individually, but he would say this to, you know, the defense when we weren't playing well, I'd say, you got to audit your soul. You got to go home and you got to audit your soul. And I mean, at times I'd be like, dude, we're playing football. Like audit, audit your soul because we're not playing hard on defense. What's up with that? But when he would say it from a spiritual perspective, it really hit me. Like, like maybe I do need to go home and take an inventory of my soul and line by line, just be like, God, am I in relationship with you? And Amos is kind of saying, like, Israel, audit your soul. Look at your life. Are you in relationship with God? And let me ask you, are you in relationship with God? Do you love God? What does your life look like? Because Israel even though they are God's people by identity, will not be saved from his judgment just because they have the name Israel emblazoned on their jersey. If you ain't gonna go out there and play the game, you're not on the team. Don't even leave the locker room. And so Amos does what prophets do. He speaks boldly and clearly about God's judgment. And before we get all concerned, this alone is evidence of God's mercy. He's just warning them and they won't listen. The prophets come to Israel over and over and over again. And do you just feel God's pain as a parent? Like every parent knows this pain that keeps putting their kid in, in, in a timeout or, or disciplining them because they're being dis disobedient. The parent wants life for their kid. All they want is the best for their kid. They're trying to protect their kid, but they know what the kid doesn't know yet, which is if you keep acting like this and you grow up as this entitled brat that you're acting like right now, life will catch up with you and eventually mom and dad won't be around and it'll destroy your life. And in the same way, Amos is saying, destroy sin in your life or sin will destroy you. And God will judge. 
God will judge. But listen to this loud and clear. God is not out to get his people. He's not out to get anyone. He loves his people. He's in relationship with his people, which is why he hates what the infection and cancer of sin has done to the people that he loves, his family. He hates sin, but he loves his people. And that's why chapter seven begins here with three visions. And it's just unbelievable. This is what it means to have a prayer life with God. I mean, we're just shown this picture. God brings Amos and he says, here, look at this vision. It's a vision of locusts. I'm gonna destroy all of the food. And what happens? Amos goes to God and he says, Lord, like, please don't do this. We're we're Israel, like we're your people. And what does God do? He says, I'll be patient. I'll give you more time. God is forgiving and gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Those are actually words from another prophet trying to tell Israel who God is. He's patient. And so God goes, okay, I'm gonna give you another vision. And this time he sends a vision of fire and Amos prays to God. They're in relationship. And he says, God, don't do this. Be patient with your children, Israel. And what does God do? He says, I relent. I won't do this. I mean, how amazing is that? I mean, they've been generations now of complete and utter disobedience and God is just patient with his people. But then we get to the third picture and it, uh, God says, I won't judge in this way, but look at this plumb line. Anyone who knows what a plumb line is, it's a weight, a string with a weight on it. It's the way that you get walls straight. I know we just redid our basement and I was working on, I got all the wood in our basement, the two by fours to build walls and then run electric, electrical through them. And I had a friend come over and nowadays they got these laser levels that essentially act as a plumb line. And I, I was so proud. I got all the walls straight. I got them all thing set up and he, he turns on his laser level and my wall's like this. And thank God, like we could pull some of the nails out. We readjusted it. We drilled it into the foundation. But God says, I'm holding up this plumb line, Israel, And boy, have you gotten crooked. You are way off of the mark, man. We got to do some work. We got to set this straight. (laughs) And so he's like, "I, I have to judge. I have to judge because judgment is about eliminating sin and correcting injustice. And see, we all want this. But then the passage takes an interesting turn because we're introduced to this character named Amaziah. And if you miss it, As you're reading, you miss the significance of what's going on here because who is Amaziah? Amaziah is the priest in Bethel. He's the one that's supposed to represent the people to God and the God to the people. And he comes to Amos and he tattletales to the king, Jeroboam, who's also supposed to represent God to the people. And he goes, Jeroboam, Amos, this guy from Judah, he's he's saying that he's gonna come and destroy you. And Amos is like, whoa, I never said I'm going to destroy you. I said, God's going to destroy you. And so then Amaziah goes back to Amos. And what does he say? He basically goes to Amos and he says, shut up and get the heck out of here. Go back to Judah where you can make money to prophesy there. And what's so funny about this phrase, it actually reveals the state of Amaziah's heart, the priest, because Amos isn't there to make money. He's obeying God, but or Amos isn't there to make money, 
But Amaziah is in his position and he's living a comfortable, prosperous life, which is why he's uncomfortable with the judgment of God. Don't make us uncomfortable, Amaziah says. Literally, don't make us uncomfortable. Stop talking about sin and judgment. And his reasoning is so pathetic. He says, this is the king's sanctuary. This is the temple of the kingdom. That's his reasoning. And at this point, you're like, which kingdom, Amaziah? And which temple of the king are you talking about? Certainly, it cannot be Yahweh's. And again, the text just confronts me this week. I'm like, Lord, like, like what kingdom am I seeking to build? Is it yours or is it mine? Which king do I really want to sit on the throne of my life? Is it me or is it you? Because Amaziah is the priest of the most high God, but he's using his position and he has prostituted it to make his life comfortable. And he's become so comfortable that when confronted with the truth, he not only doesn't see it, but he tells the guy that's telling him the truth to get out of there. But I love Amos' response in chapter 7, verse 14. He says, but I'm not a professional prophet, and I was never even trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd, and I take care of sycamore fig trees. (laughs) But the Lord called me. The Lord called me. And so I walked away from my flock, and, and I said, go prophesy to my people Israel. And then he says, Okay, listen up. (laughs) He says, thanks, but no thanks. Now listen to what I have to say you. And this is where we go like, okay, what defines a woman or a man of God? What defines a woman or a man of God? I believe one word, obedience. Obedience. Amaziah comes to Amos, shut up, get out of here. Amos' response, I'm not even a professional prophet. I'm not a pastor. I'm not trained in theology, but the Lord called me. So I did what he told me to do. I obeyed. Do you know this? Women and men of movement church, that what defines you as a woman or man of God is your obedience to him. Obedience is the mark of your love for God, period. (laughs) And this isn't just some Old Testament thing. Jesus Christ literally says this. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. Not your position, not being a pastor, not going to church, not wearing jewelry with a cross on it, not growing up Catholic. None of those things stand as evidence of your relationship with God. But obedience does. And see, what's so interesting is that our culture has become just like Amaziah. And I think so many Christians are on the backpedal because we've been told that we have to be compassionate and full of grace so we don't speak the truth in love. We're just, the culture just is like, shut up, Christians. We don't want to hear your opinions. We don't want you to talk about these things. We don't want you to say this. We don't want you to say that. And so what do we do? At work, we go, I'm just not even going to get into it. I'm not going to say my piece. I'm not going to speak the truth. Are you kidding me? God wants men and women of deep conviction that speak the truth with everything that they have, 
Yes, with kindness and compassion, but you stand on that. And we need to go into life the way that Amos looks at the priest of God and he says, shut up. And he goes, no, the Lord called me. Are you a man or woman of conviction? Don't be afraid. If God is with you, he is with you. You don't have to be rude. You don't have to be ignorant. You do not have to be an imbecile on social media. That's not what I'm saying. But will you stand confident as a follower of Jesus Christ on the truth, the way that Amos speaks truth to power? Christians, you do not have the power in our culture anymore. You gotta stand. Because the king of Israel and the priest They're cowards. They won't stand for the truth. So God sends Amos. Will he send you? Say, here am I, send me, Lord. I'll speak the truth. Which is why Amos comes and he says, you are headed towards destruction. And he says, this is what the Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit in chapter eight. In other words, God says, the time is right. I cannot wait any longer. It's time for judgment. And the rest of chapter eight is an explanation of what this judgment will look like. And it's not a great picture. Calamity is coming. God will use the surrounding nations to judge Israel. And at at this point, if I'm just being honest with you, like, I wanted to be like Amaziah this week. I just so badly, I think at times, I want to soften the blow of this passage. I want to be a coward and not talk about God's judgment. But then I was confronted by the fact that I do not love you if I do not tell you. That I am not a pastor if I don't pastor you into this truth. I am not a friend to you if I don't tell you this, that God is a God of judgment. And why do the Israelites and why do so many of us miss this in our Bibles today? Why do we miss that God is a God of judgment? I believe as you read the book of Amos, it's because Israel is in such a wonderful time of ease and comfort and prosperity. Man, they are living comfortable lives. Amos is living a comfortable life. That's why he misunderstands and he says, Amos, why don't you just go back to Judah and make money prophesying there? And Amos is like, you have no idea why I'm here. You're supposed to be the priest and this isn't about making money. And I think in the West, specifically in the suburbs of America, we live pretty easy and comfortable lives. That doesn't mean we don't have suffering. That's not what I'm saying. We leave in ease and comfort that it makes us uncomfortable to talk about God's judgment. But do you know who craves a God of judgment? The girl that just got trafficked for the fifth time today, she craves a God of judgment. You know who craves a God of judgment? The families on their slow walk to the gas chambers. Do you know who craves a God of judgment? The slaves as they're boarding the ships to be shipped off to a foreign nation where they will be slaves for the rest of their life for generations. It's funny, after the first service, I talked with our wonderful missionary. Her name's Cassidy. She's here from Haiti. She craves judgment. Haiti is in chaos right now. There is so much injustice and evil and sin and just brokenness. And she just came out to me and she just crave God's judgment. 
People that are oppressed, people that are marginalized, people that experience injustice, they crave a God of judgment. God is a God of judgment because he loves us. Somebody has got to pay. Somebody has got to put an end to this. Sin cannot keep going like this. And so what do we learn? That God's judgment is really his love. It's his mercy And God will do this, Amos says, even if it requires punishing his own people. And this is how Amos describes the day of judgment. Pay careful attention to this. We're going to unpack this. This is verse eight. The earth will tremble for your deeds and everyone will mourn. The ground will rise like the Nile River at flood time. It will heave up and then sink again. Remember that. That's earthquake language. The ground will heave up and it'll sink again. Verse nine, in that day, says the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and I will darken the earth while it is still day. I will turn your celebrations, think Passover, into times of mourning and your singing into weeping. I will wear, you will wear funeral clothes, which means someone has died and shave your heads and show your sorrow as if your only son has died. How very bitter that day will be. And this is what we call, when we study the Bible, dual fulfillment. Dual fulfillment is where God prophesies something through the prophets that are fulfilled in multiple ways. And the first fulfillment is that Israel, because of their sin, God will allow the surrounding nations to conquer them. But he will not abandon them. Far, far from it. Because 750 Years after Amos promises this. Can we get those verses back up? The Passover is happening. You know what happens? The king of Israel, the true king of Israel is riding into Jerusalem. His name is Jesus. He is God who is put on flesh and bone and he is here to experience the judgment of God on our behalf. And so Jesus comes into their Passover celebrations, their time of singing, their time of dancing, and it will turn into a time of mourning because Jesus will mount up on that cross. He will be crucified. He will experience the full wrath and judgment of God, which is why he will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God needs to forsake sin because he is holy and perfect. And Jesus takes all of the sin into himself. And when he does, guess what happens? The gospels tell us that the earth shakes, that there is an earthquake that happens. That's verse eight. And then it would also says that when Jesus cries out his last, that the whole earth goes dark. The gospels say this. And then the guys that are crucifying Jesus, the Roman soldier that has just put him up on that cross, when Jesus finally breathes his last he can finally see it. And he looks up at Jesus. And what we are told in Matthew's gospel is that that Roman soldier says, surely this is the son of God. I will turn your celebrations into time of mourning, your singing into time of weeping. You will show your sorrow as if an only son had died and the only son of God did die. This is the love and mercy of God 
in judgment. God is perfect. He is holy. Our sin deserves separation. And Jesus experiences separation from God in that moment for us. This is the wonderful world that God has brought us into and the wonderful solution that he created for our problem to bring us back into his family. And so some of you in this room, you've, you've suffered immensely in your life. Some of you have lost loved ones, like boom, 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 boom. Some of you have experienced trauma. Some of you have been a victim of something. And you, you wonder at times, like, why doesn't God just go poof and make it all go away? Well, here's the answer. God is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He is patient with his people. And to eliminate evil like poof would mean to eliminate everybody that causes evil. And that means every single person in every one of those plastic seats in this room. He would have to wipe you all out, but he doesn't because he's waiting for us to come back to us. God hates sin but he loves you desperately. But if you don't see that God is a God of judgment, you will never understand the beauty of the cross. If you just go, yeah, God loves me and he gave himself for me, but you don't understand what that took for God to show you that love, you will not understand that God put an end to injustice by plunging right through it himself. So is God a God of love? Yes, he is. Is God a God of mercy? Yes, he is. That is why he is a judge. Because his love is not tolerance and acceptance. Of all behaviors and lifestyles, his love is a consuming fire. He loves us with a bleeding heart, one that would die for his own people. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself as a propitiation for our sins, an atonement for our sins, a penalty for our sins. The gospel is the judgment of God. God's love and mercy is displayed in his judgment. So lastly, I'm thinking this week, I'm like, how do you apply this passage? What do you do with this? But there's really only one thing to do. One word, repent. Repent. Because just like obedience is a mark, if not the mark of a man or woman of God, repentance is also a beautiful mark of a man or woman of God. It's saying, God, I don't have it all together. I'm going to fail you continually, but I'm going to run back into your arms. I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to grieve over my sin. And you know why I know this is important? Because you know what is the first word out of Jesus's mouth in the gospels when he begins his ministry, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus comes, he begins his ministry, and he says, repent. Repentance is the gateway back into a relationship with God. And just like we talk about how sin is the thing that separates us from God before we're in a relationship with God, what we often are quick to forget is that sin is also the thing that experientially separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus while we're in a relationship with God. So if you're going like, man, I haven't felt God in a while or I haven't been able to really connect with him. Have you audited your soul? Is there sin in your life that you need to repent? You need to run back to the Father's arm. 
Because if we confess our sins, the Bible tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But he will let you in his mercy experience the consequences of your sin so that you turn to him. I'll keep this short because I've told this story before. But before I came to the Lord, my life was an utter and complete dumpster fire. And at the apex of that fire in that dumpster was me getting arrested for drunk driving. And boy, in that moment, did I think that my whole life was over? Did I think that my life was completely destroyed, that nothing had meaning at all? But little did I know when I looked back with 2020 spiritual vision that that was God's mercy and his deep love in my life because he broke my legs so that I couldn't run for him any longer. He let me experience the deep anguish and pain of my sin because he loved me and he was merciful for me and praise be to God, he took a hold of my life and it was only by his grace that I turned and I experienced the freedom of repentance. It was amazing. I had literally been in a prison cell before and then I was experiencing love in a way that I never thought that I could ever experience it before. And I was in the worst place of my life because I was encountered with the love of God in Jesus and the freedom of repentance, which is the freedom to fail, but the freedom to turn to God one more time. And isn't that our life as Christians? The freedom to turn to God one more time. The freedom to say yes to Jesus one more time because there's another judgment day coming. And if you are a Christ follower, you will smile knowing that your judgment day was 2,000 years ago. Jesus paid for that. But if you don't follow Jesus, there's still a judgment day coming and you will be judged and you will stand on your own two feet before the king of the universe. And you will say, this is what I have to offer you. And even all of your righteous deeds, the Bible says, are like filthy rags before him. Jesus acquits us because he is judged based on our faith in him, not in us. But you know what the best part about Jesus's judgment is? It's not just punitive, it is restorative because there will be a day for Christ followers where we will not need to repent anymore because we will be transformed. We will be made perfect. There will be no more tears, no more pain, no more infertility, no more sin, no more injustice, no more brokenness. God will transform the world. But if you do not repent, Amos prophesies, there's a famine coming but not a famine of food, but a famine of the word of God. In other words, God will not force you to love him. And Romans 1 even talks about this. Eventually, God will give you over to what you want. You do not need to worship Jesus. He will not force you to. And this is why. C.S. Lewis says, there are ultimately only two people in life. Those who look at God and say, your will be done. And those who in the end, God looks at with compassion, deep grief and love. And now I'm paraphrasing. And he says, fine, 
Your will be done. You don't want to be with me? I can't force you to be with me. And this is why Lewis says, all that are in hell, choose it. Your choice. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that has seriously and constantly desired joy could ever miss it. Those who seek him, find him. Those who knock on the door of his love will find it, and it will be open to them. God loves you with a bleeding heart. He has given his son for you. And now you see how ludicrous it is to say, no thanks, that's not for me. Let's not be like Israel who said, no thanks, Yahweh. You're not for me. Let's knock on the door of God's heart today. Seek him with everything that we have. And when we fail, and we will, (laughs) we run back, we repent. And when we do, that door is going to swing wide open and you're going to experience the love and joy and peace and forgiveness of God waiting for you in Christ Jesus. God's love is not acceptance. God's love is not tolerance. Neither is yours. His love is a consuming fire and God's love and mercy are displayed in his judgment that he took from you on himself Don't reject that today. If you have not made that decision, this is for you today. Hear this from the Lord. This is the only thing I am confident in saying, these are the Lord's words to you. All of this has been my ideas about his text. These are God's words to you. If you have not made that decision today, repent now, do it. God wants you. He wants you desperately. He loves you so much more than you could ever imagine. Do it now. And you will experience joy and freedom like you have never experienced in your life. The forgiveness of God, relationship with the one who created you. Do it now. Don't wait. Let's pray. God, those who knock on your door, the door will be open. Those who seek you will find you. Help us to do that today. Have mercy on us, Lord. We're frail, we're weak. We forget your promises. We disobey you. But Lord, we, we just experienced the love and freedom of God in the gospel that says that you took that judgment that Amos was talking about for us. You punished your own son for our sin. And if we don't understand that, Lord, we don't understand the beauty of the gospel. So help us to understand that this morning. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone that wants to make that decision today to follow Jesus, or maybe they just need to repent, that they would do that today, that they would feel comfortable to maybe even go back to our prayer table at the end of service to speak with one of our prayer team meetings, to just pray and and accept that free gift of forgiveness in their life, Lord. And we thank you for the love and mercy that you have shown us. And we pray that we would be humble before you as we try to obey you. And when we fail, and we will, live in repentance freedom. Help us to do that today, Lord. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Our vision is to be a movement of people finding their way back to God. We hope wherever you are, this message encourages you to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus. For more information about Movement Church, including attending a worship experience, getting connected, or to give online, please visit movementcolumbus.com.